So everybody loves to compare El Chapo to Pablo Escobar. Now, Pablo got rich because he had a stranglehold on the supply. El Chapo is rich because he was the best at logistics, at trafficking, at moving dope. No one in the history of the world has moved more drugs into the United States than El Chapo and the Sinaloa cartel. And you're going to learn all about it in today's episode. I'm Joshua Roberts, attorney at law, and you are watching Lawyer Up. In today's episode, we are going to be talking about the history of El Chapo. We're going to talk about his childhood and how he got into organized crime in the first place. We're going to talk about his big break that left him at the head of the Sinaloa cartel. We're going to talk about the cartel wars between the various competing entities. We're going to talk about tunnels, 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 El Chapo's main way of moving dope. And last but not least, we're going to talk about the arrest and his escape and then his second arrest and then his second escape and where El Chapo is today. If you learned something from this episode, I'd ask you to hit that like button for me. If you got something to say, you got a comment, put it in the comment section below. If you haven't subscribed to the channel, do so. Hit that subscribe button right now. And as always, I love it when you guys share me on social media. And remember, all of the Lawyer Up episodes are available on the major podcast formats. So Joaquin Guzman, better known as El Chapo, was born in 1957 in the Mexican state of Sinaloa. Now, Guzman picked up the name El Chapo, which means shorty, due to his short stature. And while he may stand only 5 feet 6 inches tall, he built one of the biggest crime syndicates in the history of the world. So as a child, El Chapo's father officially was a cattle rancher, but unofficially they grew marijuana and opium poppy. Now, El Chapo had dropped out of school in the third grade to work for his father. And while he would learn from traveling teachers who would visit uh, his town from time to time, El Chapo grew up functionally illiterate. By all accounts, El Chapo's father was a physically abusive, womanizing drunk who liked to beat his wife and kids. Well, El Chapo had had his of this behavior by age 15, so he moved in with his grandfather and started his own marijuana production business. By the age of 20, El Chapo had joined his uncle, Pedro Perez, who was one of the pioneers in Mexican drug trafficking. Now, during the 80s, the leading crime syndicate in Mexico was the Guadalajara Cartel, and it was headed by Miguel Felix Gallardo and several others. So through his uncle, El Chapo got his big break with the Guadalajara cartel as a driver for Gallardo. And Gallardo liked El Chapo so much that soon he was in charge of logistics, where he was coordinating the drug shipments from Colombia to Mexico. Now at this time, the Guadalajara cartel was basically just a middleman for the Colombia cartels. Their job was to receive the contraband from South America and then to smuggle it across the border into the United States. And the Mexican cartels were only partial players as Colombia's main entry point into the United States was still through Florida by way of the Bahamas. 
But as the U.S. government increased its law enforcement focus on Miami and the Caribbean corridor, trafficking through Mexico increased. And El Chapo was a master smuggler and excellent at building tunnels, which will become important a little bit later. So in November of 1984, the Mexican military raided a large marijuana plantation owned by the Guadalajara cartel known as Rancho Buffalo. Angered by a suspected betrayal, Gallardo kidnapped, tortured, and killed DEA agent Kiki Camarena, who was working as an informant. Now, the death caused the United States and the Mexican government to respond with a massive manhunt until Gallardo was ultimately arrested in 1989. So with the boss in jail, several leading members of the Guadalajara cartel met, and they ultimately agreed to divide up the territories previously run by the syndicate into three distinct areas. And although this is a little bit of an oversimplification of the division, essentially here's what happened. So Gallardo's family, called the Felix Brothers, they formed the Tijuana Cartel, which was to control northwest Mexico in Tijuana and Baja California. The Fuentes family formed the Juarez Cartel, which was to control the area of Chihuahua and northeast Mexico. And El Chapo and company formed the Sinaloa Cartel, which was to get the central area basically from the U.S. border down to Sinaloa. So the Guadalajara Cartel had trafficked most of the drugs overland through mules. They also did airdrops in the desert areas. But El Chapo started building a sophisticated tunnel system from Mexico underneath the border right into the United States through which he moved millions and millions of dollars worth of drugs. He also packaged cocaine in jalapeno pepper cans under the brand name of La Comadre and transferred them into the United States via train in plain sight. Simply put, the Sinaloa cartel was just trafficking better than anybody else. They were moving a lot more dope. And because of their logistics superiority, they were getting a much larger slice of the money pie than were the other two cartels. So, as you might imagine, there began to fester some envy uh, and some anger with the other two cartels. And after a couple of dust-ups, there was a major incident in 1992 where the Tijuana cartel kidnapped, tortured, and executed six Sinaloa men. And of course, after that, it was on. So El Chapo struck back in September of 1992 by killing nine members of the Tijuana cartel. Two months later, the Tijuana cartel tries to assassinate El Chapo in Guadalajara by firing at a car that he was riding in. A week later, El Chapo returns the favor by having Sinaloa men shoot up a discotheque in Puerto Vallarta frequented by the Tijuana cartel. Six were killed, but the Felix brothers, they escaped unharmed. And this cartel war continued back and forth for another six months until May 24th of 1993, when the Tijuana cartel got a tip that El Chapo was at the Guadalajara airport. So, at 4.10 p.m. that day, 20 gunmen descend upon a white Mercury Grand Marquis, and they fill it full of rounds. When the dust settled, seven were dead, but not El Chapo. While he was in the parking lot at the time, he was in a green Buick a short distance away. So, who was in the Grand Marquis? Well, it was Cardinal and Archbishop Juan Jesus Posadas Ocampo. 
Whoopsies. So this incident outraged the Mexican police, the politicians, the Catholic Church, and the public in general. So in response, the government launched a massive manhunt and offered multi-million dollar bounties on those involved. And although he was technically a victim in the attack, El Chapo's picture was plastered across every newspaper and every TV in Mexico. And this incident essentially transformed him from being just an otherwise fairly well-known criminal to being a household name in most of North America. So exposed in Mexico, El Chapo sneaks across the border into Guatemala. But ultimately, he was arrested a short time later in June of 1993. So El Chapo is extradited back to Mexico, where he is charged and convicted of drug trafficking, and he is sentenced to 20 years. End of story, right? Ha <laughs> ha. Not even close. Although El Chapo was now in prison, the Sinaloa cartel continued to operate as his brother Arturo took over the reins. And El Chapo still had access to lots of cash, so he was able to maintain a fairly lavish lifestyle for an inmate. And in prison is also where he met Zulema Hernandez, who was in there for armed robbery and who would become his longtime mistress. Now, her body would ultimately be found in the trunk of a car in 2008, carved with multiple Zs, signifying Los Zetas, the Sinaloa cartel's biggest rival at that time. But that wouldn't be for several years. El Chapo had most of the guards on his payroll to make sure that he would receive preferential treatment. And on January 19th of 2001, in a group effort, the guards loaded El Chapo into a laundry cart, rolled him through the prison and right out the door. Then a guard hid El Chapo in his trunk as they simply drove away. And he was gone, escaped. In total, 78 people were implicated in the escape plan, including the facility director, who is now in prison himself for aiding the escape, and the local police in Jalisco who made sure that El Chapo had a 24-hour head start on any manhunt. So within a couple of days, El Chapo is back in charge of the Sinaloa cartel. And one of the first things he did was seek to expand the market. Now, the Sinaloa cartel originally was in the cocaine, marijuana, and heroin business, while the Colima cartel in the Amezqua brothers, they had kind of a stranglehold on the meth business in Mexico. And that was until 1999 when they were arrested. With them gone, El Chapo cultivated ties with China and India to import the necessary precursor chemicals and constructed several large meth labs to expand their operations. El Chapo ultimately turned over the supervision of the entire meth operation to Coronel Nacho Villarreal, a.k.a. the Crystal King. And while Nacho was ultimately killed in 2010 in Jalisco after a shootout with the Mexican army, in those 10 years or so, he firmly established the Sinaloa cartel as a major worldwide player in the meth game. Interestingly, it was also during this time period where there was a non-aggression pact between the major cartels. And cartel violence, at least between each other, was really pretty low during this time period. Yeah, that was until 9-11 of 2004 when El Chapo had a family member of the rival Juarez cartel assassinated by members of Los Negros, which was the armed wing of the Sinaloa cartel, at least at that time. 
This was, of course, a breach of the non-aggression pact, and it set in motion a bloody battle between the cartels that continues, well, to this day, really, and which has claimed more than 60,000 lives since that time. And the sparring was particularly intense in 2005 and 2006. Lots of brutal murders, decapitations, people sending body parts all over the place to send a message, a lot of nasty stuff. So in 2007, the Mexican government had had enough of these cartel squabbles, and they brought in the military to stem the violence. They made over 50,000 arrests of cartel and cartel members. Interestingly, even though they were the largest cartel, only about 2% of those arrested were Sinaloa cartel members, which led to accusations in the media that the government was protecting El Chapo and his group. And, you know, although the government denied the allegations, their crackdown against rival cartels actually led to the expansion of the Sinaloa territories at that time. And, you know, it was a well-known technique of El Chapo that he used against his competition. He would provide information to ICE and other government agencies so they could bust rival drug cartels. Specifically, he would disclose locations of their drug refineries and labs. And this hit them where it really hurt. In fact, El Chapo's tips effectively led to the entire dismantling of the Tijuana cartel in their lab. In fact, it is widely speculated and believed that El Chapo made a deal with the DEA where he intentionally gave up his own cartel leaders, including Alfredo Beltran Leva and 11 of his hit squad members, in exchange for continued operations free from arrest. This obviously didn't sit well with the other Beltran Leva brothers who were also lieutenants in the Sinaloa cartel. So they broke off and started their own syndicate in 2008. And what followed was a bloody exchange between the Beltran Leva boys and the Sinaloa cartel, which included the assassination of Edgar Guzman, who was El Chapo's son. That happened on May 8th of 2008. Over the span of three months of fighting that followed that assassination, almost 400 people were killed between the two cartels. Ultimately, realizing they were outmatched, the Beltran Leva brothers aligned with Los Zetas to form a more powerful alliance to battle the Sinaloa. And that association became powerful enough to officially be recognized by the United States government as the Beltran Leva cartel. So during this time, when he had escaped from prison and he was on the lam, Chapo primarily hid out in the Sierra Madre Mountains in the Triangulo Dorado or Golden Triangle region. Now, this is not to be confused with the Golden Triangle area of Southeast Asia, but this is also an area in Mexico that is remote and is well known for growing marijuana and opium poppy. And there's also lots of hideouts in the caves which provide a good cover for labs for heroin, cocaine, and methamphetamine. And El Chapo's entourage would move between a network of ranches in that region. Chapo was rumored to have a personal security team of over 300 men. And these ranches were very remote. They were only accessible by long, single-track dirt roads where you could see somebody coming from miles away. And the Sinaloa had a network of ATVs, and they had armored vehicles and aircraft to easily escape any incoming foe. And, of course, El Chapo is legendary for his ability to evade the authorities. During this time, 
his legend only grew in narco folklore as people would tell stories of his entourage rolling into town. They'd go into a restaurant. His bodyguards would confiscate everybody's cell phones. They'd have their meal. They'd have their drinks. Then the bodyguards would return the cell phones and pay everybody's tab. So he was becoming legend. However, ultimately, El Chapo's overconfidence is what betrayed him. After attending a family reunion in Sinaloa, bodyguards were followed by the authorities and they were able to track him down. And on February 22nd of 2014, he was arrested at a beachfront hotel in Mazatlan where he was staying with one of his former wives and two daughters. He was taken into custody after a brief struggle with no shots fired. And he'd been on the lam for 13 years. So El Chapo was taken back to the prison from which he escaped. Mexican President Enrique Pina Nieto claimed victory as other world leaders also celebrated. Now, El Chapo was put into solitary confinement in a highly restricted cell where he stayed 23 hours a day. He was under 24-7 security camera surveillance in every area of his cell except for the shower. This time, the judge limited him to only enough money to buy personal hygiene products. This way, presumably, he wouldn't be able to bribe corrections officials. El Chapo faced several charges in Mexico and the United States for murder, kidnapping, torture, drug trafficking, money laundering, you name it, he was charged with it. And the United States officials were seeking extradition, so it was a great big legal mess. Ultimately, in 2015, a federal judge in Mexico said El Chapo is not going to the United States until he had been tried in Mexico and, if convicted, served all of his time, which he estimated would be between 300 and 400 years. So that's where things stood until July 11th of 2015. It was on that day that a corrections official who was monitoring El Chapo's security camera noted that he had entered the shower area and didn't exit. It had been over 30 minutes, so guards were dispatched to investigate, and what they found when they arrived was a great big hole in the floor of the shower and a ladder descending into the depths, but no El Chapo. So here's how he escaped a second time. There was a tunnel that was chiseled out. It was 33 feet underground. It spanned right at a mile in length and stretched to a nearby house that was under construction. The tunnel was 5 feet 7 inches tall to give El Chapo an inch of clearance. It was 2.5 feet wide. It had lighting. It had air ducts and air conditioning and a motorcycle on rails for a fast getaway. Now, upon discovery of the escape, officials immediately sounded the alarm, which started another worldwide manhunt. Interpol was notified, Mexican airports were put on lockdown, and a multi-million dollar bounty was put on El Chapo's head. This was obviously pretty embarrassing for Mexico's government because now they had lost track of El Chapo twice. And it seriously called into question the Mexican government's ability to ever really bring El Chapo to justice. But what the Mexican government did next was very smart. They got in touch with the law enforcement team in Colombia that had caught Pablo Escobar and had dismantled the Medellin and the Cali cartels down there. And they developed a similar search block organization 
that was specifically designed to track down El Chapo. So then what happens next has to be categorized in the truth is stranger than fiction category. So El Chapo, he's back now with the Sinaloa cartel. He reaches out to Mexican actress Kate de Castillo, telling her that he would like to do a Hollywood film about his career. So she agrees. She then contacts American actor Sean Penn, yeah, the one that was married to Madonna, and they all agree that they will do an interview of El Chapo. So on October 2nd of 2015, De Castillo and Penn, they take a chartered plane to a specified location. Then they switch planes and get on one of El Chapo's light planes, which can fly under radar. Then they get into a vehicle and they are transported another seven hours in the dark of night to a mountaintop location in the Sierra Madres, where they conduct an interview of El Chapo that will later be published in the Rolling Stone magazine. And El Chapo tells his story, including that he supplied more heroin, meth, cocaine, and marijuana than anybody else in the world. Now, it is hotly disputed as to whether this meeting actually led the authorities to El Chapo's hidden location. We know their communications were being monitored by the NSA and the DEA, and some argue it wasn't until they actually all got together that the authorities could pinpoint the location. Now, law enforcement denies this. They say they already knew where he was and where he was hiding out. Regardless, within two weeks of this meeting, the Mexican Marines descended upon El Chapo and this location. They were met with heavy gunfire as El Chapo fled on foot, carrying a child with him as he ran, making him obscured as a target. The authorities ultimately decided not to shoot at him because he was holding a little girl that could have been hit. And El Chapo got away. Again. So El Chapo's whereabouts remained unknown for another couple of months until some neighbors complained about a house in northern Sinaloa that was full of armed people. After confirming it was likely El Chapo and where he was hiding out, the Mexican special forces hit the house in Operation Black Swan. That was January 8th of 2016. During this raid, five people were killed, six arrested, and one Marine was wounded. And guess what? They didn't find El Chapo, but they did find another escape tunnel. It went under the house and popped up about a mile away. So as they were discovering this tunnel, El Chapo was at the other end of the tunnel with a bodyguard. And what they did was steal a car at gunpoint and took off. What they didn't do was kill the driver or take his cell phone. So he immediately reported the car as stolen. A statewide alert was issued on the vehicle, and it was intercepted about 20 miles away. Now, at first, El Chapo attempted to bribe the four officers with cash. But when his offer was refused, he summoned his hit squad to their location, and he told the officers that they were all going to die. So the officers quickly relocated to a hotel on the edge of town and waited for reinforcements. Luckily for them, the Mexican Marines found them before the Sinaloa Death Squad did. And on January 8th of 2016, once again, El Chapo was back in custody. This stint of freedom lasting only about six months. Again, Mexico and the world celebrated 
Legal proceedings started again, only this time the Mexican officials were on board to extradite El Chapo to the United States. They're like, hey, you guys see if you can hold him. And it took a year, but in January of 2017, El Chapo was extradited to the United States with the explicit guarantee that he would not be sentenced to death. He was tried in a New York federal court, found guilty on all charges, and sentenced to life in prison plus 30 years. And he was also ordered to forfeit $12.6 billion. El Chapo is currently serving his sentence at the ADX Supermax prison in Florence, Colorado. This is the nation's new Alcatraz, and it's considered the most secure prison in the United States. Inmates are housed in single cells 23 hours a day and under 24-hour surveillance. These cells are 7 feet by 12 feet, made of poured reinforced concrete on all sides, with only a bed, desk, toilet, sink, and shower in them. Some of the more notable inmates currently in the prison, along with El Chapo, include Bombers Row, which is uh, Terry Nichols uh, from the Oklahoma City bombing, Eric Rudolph from the Olympic Park bombing during the 96 games in Atlanta, and of course, Ted Kaczynski. The prison also holds all major foreign and domestic terrorists, most of which who have some tie to either Al-Qaeda or ISIS. And that is where El Chapo is today, in Florence, Colorado, serving out the remainder of his years in that penitentiary. So the question is, where does that leave the state of the Mexican drug cartels today? And trying to explain the current state of drug cartels in Mexico and their hit squads or their enforcement squads is kind of like trying to herd cats. Since the Guadalajara cartel disbanded, there have been over 50 cartels, mini cartels, hit squads emerge and fade within Mexico. Their territories are constantly changing. Allegiances are constantly changing. Cartel groups who are friends one day are sworn enemies the next. It is extremely fluid, and it's almost like they're a bunch of drug dealers or something. Anyway, when the uh, DEA released its most recent national drug threat assessment in 2020, the report identified six major Mexican cartels with the biggest impact on the United States. So number one continues to be the Sinaloa cartel. Even after El Chapo's arrest, they are considered the wealthiest and most powerful Mexican drug cartel. Now, number two is the Jalisco New Generation Cartel. It's based in Guadalajara, and it is deemed the fastest-growing cartel in Mexico by the United States. It's characterized by extreme violence. The Jalisco New Generation Cartel operates primarily in southern Mexico. Number three is the Beltran Leva Organization. So the cartel was created and recognized in 2008 when the brothers and their associates split from the Sinaloa cartel. And although all of the brothers have either been killed or incarcerated, there are several splinter groups that still operate under this loose association and organizational heading. Number four is the Juarez cartel. It is one of the oldest of the Mexican drug cartels. For years, it has been in the middle of a turf war with the Sinaloa cartel, and that continues to this day. Number five is the Gulf Cartel, which has been around forever and is still in existence, operating primarily in northeast Mexico. It spends most of its time these days fighting against Los Zetas in a turf war they've been in since 2010. And last but not least, the number six with the most influence is the Los Zetas Cartel. It was formed as an independent cartel in 2008 when it split from the Gulf Cartel. 
Now, the Zetas are extremely violent, even by cartel standards, and they specialize in decapitating people and sending their body parts around Mexico and other places uh, to send messages, right? Their influence has been seen as declining in recent years due to internal conflicts between rival subgroups within the cartel. So at the end of the day, the DEA suggests that in his prime, El Chapo's reach surpassed the influence and power of Pablo Escobar. And aside from organized crime, El Chapo married four times. He had several mistresses and at least nine children that we know of. Now, the girls are still alive today. Some of the sons are in prison. Some are dead. However, three remain in leadership today with the Sinaloa cartel. If you want to know more about the story of Joaquin Guzman, El Chapo, it has been memorialized in multiple shows, books, TV shows and movies, and most recently in the Netflix series Narcos Mexico, as well as a separate show they have simply titled El Chapo. So that is the episode. I hope you have enjoyed it. If you have, or if you even learned something, hit that like button. If you got something to say to me, you got a comment, you got a question, put it in the comment section below. If you haven't subscribed to the channel, do so. We like to talk about a lot of different topics, and there's a lot of good legal information you can get from this channel. And last but not least, you guys know that I love it when you share me on social media. My name is Joshua Roberts, attorney at law, and you've been watching Lawyer Up. Send lawyers, guns, and money. 